Book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it he being dead still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is rewarder of those who diligently seek him. For a little while this evening, I want to preach on this subject, pleasing to God. Pleasing to God. Would you set your Bible down to your device? Lord, thank you. Join me in prayer. Let's ask God to speak to us in the next few moments through his holy word. God, we ask you and invite you that you would speak to us as your people and friends and family and guests who are here this evening. As we look to your word, God, let your word with clarity guide us and instruct us. Lord, let it the testimony be of our life that we pleased you. And by your word, God, we are guided in how to live that life of faith that honors and glorifies your great name. We thank you, God. We honor you. We worship you in this place tonight. In Jesus' name, everybody say amen. amen. God bless you. you. may be seated. I feel like um, this evening to continue in a vein of thought and in a flow of what God has been specifically speaking to our church over the past three months through the preaching of his word and most certainly the demonstration of his power God continues to call us as his people to live a life that is pleasing to him if you can think back to April and the preaching of the lordship the name and the power of Jesus Christ calling us that he alone is worthy of our worship and our service and loyalty and through the month of May and even through June examining the principles of our apostolic identity and holiness inwardly and outwardly and seeking to not be conformed into the image of this world but transformed by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ into his image. All of these messages and the power of the Holy Ghost and the demonstration of the miraculous and signs and wonders and the dominion of the name of Jesus Christ over every power of darkness and every demon of hell is all in an effort to call us into a place of worship and service and loyalty to Jesus Christ alone, that we submit to his lordship, that we not uh, pretend or try to, to fake ourselves out that we can somehow live in this waffling place of indecision where we're one thing on Sunday and Wednesday and quite another on the other days, but God helping us to understand that He's calling us to live a life that is pleasing to Him, a life that honors and glorifies Him, that is submitted to His Lordship and that gives Him alone our exclusive worship, our adoration, our obedience, and our loyalty. And so I feel that again this evening that to stay in that vein. When we look at the book of Hebrews, we're reading 
a, a book that was written to Christians in the first century, absolutely still applicable to us in the 21st century, but here in the first century, many of the Christian Jews and God-fearers with a Jewish understanding were scattered around the Roman Empire and they were under the duress of social and even physical persecution and, and struggles within or under the Roman Empire. So much so that it appeared that some of them were in danger of drifting back into the comfort zone of Judaism. Judaism being a place that was accepted by the Greco-Roman culture and a place that at this season at least was not under persecution. But through the preaching of the Word of God and through the demonstration of His power in the first century, the writer of Hebrews tries to persuade these early Christians not to revert back to Judaism, not to turn around and backslide from the covenant of grace and mercy found in Jesus Christ. And so when you read Hebrews, it is a persuasive pastoral letter, or even some would say a recorded sermon. And it was written to be read out loud in congregations. And when you read or when you hear Hebrews, it is anchored in the scriptures. It is biblically sound, but it is punctuated by exhortations and warnings of a pastor who is calling the people of God, particularly Jewish Christians and, and these God-fearing Christians, that they would not turn around, that they would not slide backwards, that they would not revert back to an old understanding of how to please God, but that they would remain steadfast in the faith, in Jesus Christ alone. And so for the almost the first entire first nine chapters, Hebrews conclusively, like a great lawyer, demonstrates that Jesus Christ is superior or better than the angels. That Jesus Christ is superior to Moses, the giver of the Sinai law. That Jesus Christ is superior to Joshua, he who led them into the promised land of Canaan. That Jesus Christ is superior to every Old Testament priest. And that Jesus Christ is superior to all of the sacrifices in the Old Testament combined. In chapters 9 and 10, Hebrews then demonstrates the superiority and the finality of God's redemptive plan in Jesus Christ. How that now, in the age of grace, that we come into covenant not with the sacrifices of animals or the rituals of the Jewish religion, but now we come into covenant with God by faith in Jesus Christ and through his atoning once and for all sacrifice, his death on that cruel cross. This is the relentless message of Hebrews. Don't turn around. Don't go back to animal sacrifices and priestly offerings. Don't, don't dare take the blood of Jesus Christ that is given for you and given for I and then tread it underneath on your way out of the church. But stay true to the, to the, to the faith 
that you are now anchored in, that we are saved by Jesus Christ alone. Having conclusively established the superiority of the new covenant of faith in Jesus Christ, in chapter 10, the writer of Hebrews now transitions to pastoral exhortation and now transitions for the remaining of the book in which he is preaching and he is teaching and he is exhorting these precious saints of God that they would be true to their calling and that they would be found loyal to Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 10 and 19, he writes, Therefore, because of everything I've just preached, because of everything that you've just heard about this absolute conclusive superiority of Jesus Christ. Now I want you to enter boldly into the throne room of grace by this new and living way through the veil through Jesus Christ who is now our high priest. In verse 22 he says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience which is repentance and our bodies washed with pure water, which is baptisms. In verse 23 of Hebrews 10, the writer proclaims now, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Basically, this is his message. To come on, church, pay attention and stand up saints of God, and understand that because of who Jesus Christ is and because of the finality of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that now we are to draw near to him with a true heart in full assurance of faith that our salvation is secure, that we hold fast this confession of our hope without wavering, that you don't have to waffle between Judaism and Jesus Christ but hold fast the confession in Christ alone, knowing that he who has promised you eternal life, that he is faithful, that God is faithful. The writer of Hebrews is preaching hard and he's writing with powerful persuasion. Please hold fast to your confession for God is able and he is true to his word. Then he continues in verse 24 telling them, hey, and by the way, consider one another and stir one another up in love and good works. Don't just let somebody slide off of your row and out the back door and out of your small group and out of your local church back into a way that will not save them. Hey, no, you stir them up with love and good works. And that's why in verse 25, he says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as some are doing, but come together and exhort one another and teach the word of God and stir one another up to serve the Lord with a pure conscience, all the more so as you see the day of the Lord's return approaching. Then in verses 26 through 31, the writer pauses and takes an aside that is still really in the flow and takes time to address the fearful consequences of willfully persisting in sin. 
Then he kind of picks back up in verse 32 of chapter 10. When he tells him, recall, I want you to remember those former days. I want you to think about it, saints of God. Here you are wavering and some of you are trying to think you're going to go back into the old way. I want you to remember that you have already endured great suffering. You've already endured reproaches and been made a public spectacle and tribulations and and those that you surrounded yourself and were companions with, you've, you've watched them endure suffering and you've even accepted the plundering of your goods in verse 34. And, and why did you endure all of that? You've already come through the tr- fire. You've already walked through the valley. You've already fought some battles and you made it and God kept you. And how do you think all of that happened? The writer is saying in verse 34, because knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. He's like, listen here, saints of God. You went through what you went through because you were convinced that God was true to his word and that you were going to rise and meet him in the air. And now you want to turn around and go back? So verse 35, therefore... Do not cast away your confidence, which is of great reward. You have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive that promise. That promise that has kept you, you're going to receive it if you will endure. Verse 37. Now he kind of takes a little bit of Isaiah 26 and takes some passages from Habakkuk and he just kind of puts it together And because the, the writer of Hebrews, if he does anything, he preaches from the Bible. Uh-huh. Hebrews is anchored in the Old Testament scriptures over and over and over. So verse 37, he reminds him of some of those scriptures for yet a little while. And he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Verse 38, now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. The writer of Hebrews wants his audience to understand you need to endure. And if you'll just hold fast to your faith, you're going to receive the promise. And may I remind you of what the prophets declared that the just, those who would please God, they live by faith. If you're going to please God, saints, you're going to have to live by faith. And then he makes his point very powerfully because if anyone draws back, God has no pleasure in them. But we, verse 39, are not of those who draw back to perdition, but we are those who believe to the saving of the soul. Come on, saints of God. Come on, believers. Uh, We're not like those who are going to turn around, but we are those uh, who believe. We are those who walk by faith, and because we walk by faith, uh, we know that our souls will be saved. That now leads all the way up to the classical chapter of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Here the writer of Hebrews characterizes 
and now substantiates what it means to live a life of steadfast faith. He gives definition to and he gives examples for living a life that is pleasing to God, a life that is going to obtain that eternal reward. Chapter 11 of Hebrews, it is a descriptive chapter of faith, but it is also prescriptive for you and I. It is designed to demonstrate great heroes of faith, but it is also designed that it would be emulated by people who were caught in the in-between of the cross and the end of all that is. And in this in-between time, whether it is the first century or the 21st century, chapter 11 stands as not only a description of a life pleasing to God, but it stands as a prescription for how you and I can live a life that pleases God. Now faith, is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith that pleases God is something objective that places on the objects of hope a substantial reality that will and shall unfold according to God's purpose and God's pace. It is above all a faith that pleases God. It is a steadfast hope in the return of Jesus Christ for his saints, both dead and those that are alive, and that we shall meet him in the air. It's not just a hope in a new car. It's not just a hope in a bonus. It's not just a hope that somebody you know who likes you will win the lottery. But it is above all a steadfast hope that some glad morning we shall see Jesus in the air. It is a hope above all that come what may, whether I live or whether I die, whether I am affluent or whether I am in poverty, whether I am in health or whether I am in sickness, faith is the substantial reality that some glad morning we shall see Jesus in the air. That he is coming back for you and me. Faith that pleases God demonstrates the evidence and the reality of what we cannot see. It provides full proof for what remains invisible. This is the faith that pleases God. For by it, the elders obtained a good testimony. This faith that pleases God is about to be authenticated by following examples that we call heroes of faith. And all of these men and women are endorsed by God through his word as people who please God. Verse 3, by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. 
by faith in God's written word. We spiritually understand that all that was created, all that was, all that is, and all that will ever be was created by God through his spoken word. By faith, we know that. Now, in verse 4, Hebrews provides the first two biblical examples of what? Of a life of faith, a life that pleases God. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts, and through it he being dead still speaks. By faith, the second example is Enoch, who was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. That's a testimony worth having in your life. Together, these first two examples, Abel and Enoch, form a comprehensive pattern of faith that pleases God. There's going to be a lot of illustrations and examples that the writer's going to give after verse 6. But he is intentional about these first two. And if all you have is the first six verses, you have the heart of the chapter. Abel and Enoch form a comprehensive pattern of faith that pleases God. Abel, lit by faith, suffered and was not delivered. Enoch lived by faith and was eternally translated to heaven and did not experience earth. Abel demonstrates living an earthly life of faith, steadfast faith, and Enoch demonstrates that you can obtain eternal life through living a life of steadfast faith. Together, they are a pattern not only for us to know, but for us to emulate. That no matter what happens on this earth, it will be said of me that he pleased God. And whether I am killed in the present or whether I never experience death, but I am caught up to be with the Lord forever and ever, it doesn't really matter. I want to please God. By faith, Abel offered to God. There's not a lot of elaboration here about Abel, about his life, about what he offered and how he offered it and, and why his was accepted and Cain's was not. There's not a lot in Genesis. There's not a lot of here in Hebrews. But from the general scope of Scripture, we can understand some, some things about Abel. That whatever 
Abel offered and however Abel conducted himself before God, he must have been intentional about his relationship with God for his sacrifice was accepted by God. He must have carefully and prayerfully served and worshiped God. He must have obediently offered sacrifices to God and he must have done so with an expectation that he, that God would be pleased and that God would respond to his worship. There's not a lot in scripture about Abel, but the writer of Hebrews uses him as a defining example of what it means to live a life that pleases God, that God would testify through his word that I accepted his sacrifice. Carefully and prayerfully, Abel worshiped God. He lived a life that pleased the Lord. By faith, Enoch was simply taken away and did not see death. But before he was taken away, it was his testimony that he pleased God. Just like Abel for Enoch, there's, there's not a lot of elaboration in Genesis. You can go read it and there, there's not a lot here in Hebrews. There's a lot of questions we have about these two men. But Genesis, the Genesis text is notable for twice referring to Enoch as having walked with God or having pleased God. And this is what the writer of Hebrews quotes in chapter or verse 5. That whatever it was about Enoch, his testimony that Genesis twice brings out, is that in all the list of these great patriarchs and people that Enoch served God with a special devotion and with an intimacy that God found pleasing. That he did not just walk before the Lord as described the other patriarchs, a loyal servant who was always standing ready to serve. But Enoch was a step above and was different. He was special in that he did not just walk before the Lord, he walked with God. And that captures an emphasis on Enoch's communion and fellowship with God. He worshiped God with an intimacy uh, that when he was taken, he had this trademark on his life. That man pleases God, by faith, he pleased the Lord. The introduction of faith, that general definition, and now the examples of Abel and Enoch are, are then clarified, honed, and reinforced by the descriptive and prescriptive definition of faith that we find in verse 6. But without faith, Enoch pleased the Lord... And then in verse 6, we just flow right into an understanding that without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. This is the capstone of Hebrews' foundational preaching an illustration of a life of faith. 
There's going to be 34 more verses in chapter 11 of biblical examples, uh, but it is verses 1 through 6, and it is verse 6 capping off this introductory section that is the foundational definition for how you and I can live a life that pleases God. Do you, do you want to please the Lord? Is, is that a desire and a drive of your heart, of your life, that, that I want to please God? That, that I don't want to just be different. I don't want to just be a part of a different club who, who acts a certain way and looks a certain way and does certain things. I don't want to just profess something so that I can soothe my conscience and, and I can be told that, you know, you're living a good life. I want to please God. This is the prescriptive foundation for living a life that is pleasing to God. It is the fundamental truth about a God-pleasing faith that whether we endure without earthly deliverance like Abel or whether we see miraculous deliverance like Enoch, that our faith, our faith, our life must be anchored in who God is and the certainty of his word. My life is anchored in that I believe in who he is and I believe in the certainty of his word. That come what may in this life, I know that I will see him as he is. You see, there, there's just no other way to please God. There's no alternate path to receiving eternal life. The writer of Hebrews said, without faith, without faith that pleases God, it is impossible to please God. So if I'm going to live a life that pleases God, there are no shortcuts around verse 6. Just as there are no shortcuts around John 3 and 3 and John 3 and 5, when Jesus said, except a man be born again of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter to the kingdom of God. Entire religious movements spend their entire, have spent their history and spend all of their energy explaining why the Bible doesn't say what the Bible says. In John 3 and 3 and John 3 and 5, but you and I can do the same thing in our life in Hebrews 11 and 6. We can explain to everybody except, you know, except God. And we can even try to convince God about why we, we cannot live up to verse 6, but how he still somehow has to be pleased with us. The writer of Hebrews says, no, without faith, without the faith I've been writing about, without the faith of Abel, without the faith of Enoch, without the faith of everybody else I'm going to describe in the remaining part of my sermon, without this faith, it is impossible to please the Lord. There is no alternate path. He who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently 
seek him. So this life that pleases God is first defined by a steadfast, biblically anchored faith that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. The first step of faith that pleases God is that you must be convinced that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. If you are waffling in your mind over the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ, you cannot please the Lord. Now truth is ever reaching and God's love is ever calling. But if you're going to please the Lord, you must through scripture arrive at the conclusion in your heart and mind that Jesus Christ is who he says that he is. That he is the mighty God in Christ that he is the sovereign king who sits on the throne over all that is. You have to be convinced in your mind. Amen. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. Paul to Timothy said, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And in Revelation 22 and 3, in a final conclusive biblical demonstration of the oneness of God, the Bible says there shall be no more curse, but the throne, singular, of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him, and they shall see His face, and His name shall be on their foreheads. If you are not convinced in who Jesus Christ is, you cannot please the Lord. That's not politically correct, but let it just be sure by Scripture. If I am to live a life pleasing to God, then I have to take the Bible for what it says. And the biblical conclusion is clear. He is God all by himself. Must believe that he is that he's real and he's present and he delights in relationship with humanity. If you and I are going to remain steadfast in the faith and live a life that pleases God, then we must do that. We must believe that he is. But this is not just about speculation. This is not about verbal profession and mental sin in Jesus Christ. This is about believing in who he is. It compels us to want to draw near to him because I believe that he is who he says he is. I am compelled to bow before him in humble adoration. I am compelled to serve him with obedient service. I am compelled to love him with all of my heart, all of my mind, and all of my soul because without that kind of faith, it's impossible to please God. It's not just what you say. It's what you practice. 
It's not just what you, you know, what you think in your mind and, and what, you, what you believe in the in, in, inner hidden parts of the man that God looks upon. It must be evidenced by what you do. Are you worshiping him and are you loyal to him and are you obedient to him? That is the evidence that you believe that he is. But that's not enough to just believe that he is. You must also believe that he is a rewarder to them that diligently seek him. There's a lot of people in Pentecostal pews, one that's Pentecostal pews, that they love to sing, uh, it's all in him, and they just went bananas over, he is who he says he is, but they sit there living in a miserable state that God can't help them, they're sick forever, God's never gonna deliver them, never gonna answer their prayer, and their face is a mile long, and they just love to tell about how bad and tough and hard to climb up the mountain is, and just gonna barely make it, I just hope I can stumble in the glory, and woe is me, and poor pitiful me, and they're a pity party waiting to explode. You don't want to get near them. But to live a life that pleases God is not just that you believe that he is. It's that you are convinced in the certainty of his word. That you believe he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. You see this kind of faith that pleases God. This is not about fairy tale hope. This is not about a pot of gold on the other side of the rainbow or the chance that lightning might strike here twice. This is about a trust in God's sovereignty and the certainty of his word that come hell or high water, there is no demon in hell. Not even the dragon himself can stop God from executing his word. When God speaks, it is certain, it is done, it is soon. It shall come to pass. And if you're going to please God, you must be convinced that God always keeps his word. God always keeps his word. It is a confidence that if I seek him with all of my heart, I will find him. He's not playing hide and go seek with me, but he delights in a relationship with his people and that I am convinced it is his good pleasure to give unto us his kingdom both here and for eternity. I have to believe it when Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things everybody else worries about shall be added unto you. I have to believe that Jesus is who he says he is and that his word is true when he said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe in me also. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you into myself. That where I am, there you may be also. I've got to believe it. I've got to live it. I've got to act it out. If I'm going to live a life that pleases God, I don't just believe in who he is, but I'm convinced that what he says is true, that his word stands true. 
I have to believe what John wrote in his first epistle, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence towards God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him. Why? Because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. I just believe that if I live a life pleasing to God, that whatever I ask in alignment to his will, it shall come to pass. I don't believe it because it's a fairy tale. I don't believe it because it's magic pixel dust or some kind of olive oil sent to me because I gave certain to somebody who said that who's just a snake oil salesman. No, I believe it because thus saith the word of God. Thus saith the word of God. I don't have to do anything but plant my life on the Holy Scripture and know that God is and he is a rewarder and that if I am pleasing to him, that whatever I ask in his name, that shall I receive. This is what it means to live a life that pleases God. He is, and he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. This unwavering belief in who God is, this unwavering belief in his word, is what equipped Enoch to live a life pleasing to God. And it was his testimony that he pleased God. I don't know. I, I can't speak for you. I can't make the choices for you. But as for me, and as for my house, as Joshua would, would say, I want to share in Enoch's testimony. He pleased God. That family pleased God. And if I'm going to have this testimony about my life, then the message of Hebrews and the message of the whole of Scripture is that I have to live a life pleasing to God, a life that is in complete submission to His Lordship, and a life that is in complete reliance upon Him and His doing what He said He would do through His Word. And what is also clear is that there is no biblical disconnect between that faith in God and my obedience to God. You see, biblically, there's no room for waffling in my loyalty to Jesus Christ. Biblically, to please God, there's no yin and yang of worshiping God. Today, yeah, tomorrow, no. It's not about, I don't like that genre. I do like that one. My worship can't be that fickle. My, my obedience can't be, is it convenient or inconvenient? My faithfulness can't be, is there pressure or there's not pressure? My prayer can't be based upon my baby's sick. Today's pretty good. I think I'll just go conquer the world myself. My life pleasing to God has to be about him, that he alone is worthy of my exclusive loyalty, that there is no other king upon the throne of my heart. For either he is the Lord of all or he is not Lord at all in our lives. And you can appoint yourself as king, 
You can put any king you want, power. You can put wealth. You can put the affirmation of culture and fashion. You can look like whatever they tell you to look like. You can say whatever they tell you to say. You can go wherever culture tells you to go. You can enjoy a life of addictive uh, escapism. You can enjoy a life of sexual promiscuity and deny there's a God to ever hold you accountable. But in the end, every king you put upon the throne of your heart outside of the Lord Jesus Christ is a fraud. And not only are they a counterfeit king in the end, they are a puppet of the king of this earth who is a dragon whose name is Satan. Because the scripture is clear, there's no middle ground of indecision. Either I am living a life pleasing to God or I am living a life that is not pleasing to God. Either he is the Lord of my life or there is a dragon that I serve. Oh, there might be something cute and cuddly that's between me and the dragon, but revelation makes clear behind the scenes there's a dragon controlling everything and every world system. So, so the scripture account is clear. If I'm going to live a life pleasing to God, then it's all in. That is, it's, it's, it's all in. It's everything I am devoted to him. That he alone is the Lord of my life and he alone is worthy of my exclusive loyalty, worship, and obedience. The worship team is coming now. You see, to live this life of faith that pleases God is to live a God-centered life that is mirrored after Paul's appeal to the Romans in 12 and 1 when he said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That is a God-centered life that I'm striving for because I want to please the Lord. A life, a life that pleases God is mirrored after the appeal of Hebrews following that great chapter 11, the writer goes straight into 12 and 1. Therefore, we also, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses like Abel and Enoch and Abraham and all the other heroes, some who were delivered victorious and some who were sawn in half, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. You see, when we're talking about spiritual dominion and when pastors preaching on apostolic identity inwardly and outwardly, it is the weights that hang some of us up. If it's black and white and it's it's First Corinthians 11 and, and, the, and the hair of a lady, you know, there's, 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 there's no way around chapter 11. But when it comes to the application of biblical principles, some of us back up and we start debating and we start wondering just how necessary is that and and we you know I I think I can make it to heaven and carry that weight if if if, if it's not black and white that it's a sin I'll just tote that weight around because I like that weight and I kind of enjoy what it feels like to to carry that weight. But the writer of Hebrews says, come on, if we're going to live a life pleasing to God, if we're going to believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that pleases him, then I've got to throw off the weight. 
I've got to throw off anything, anything, anything that keeps me from exclusive worship to Jesus Christ. Anything that begins to, to peel away at his lordship, I have to toss it aside. Why? Because I'm looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's what it is to live a life pleasing to God, looking unto Jesus Christ, the author and the finisher of our faith. If you're able, would you stand? Pleasing to God. That's the testimony I want in my life, that he's pleasing to God. Not that you like me. Not that you love me. That, that, that's nice. But I want the testimony in my life to be that he's pleasing to God. That he just believed God was and is, shall always be. And he believed that God was a rewarder of them. And he just lived life looking unto Jesus Christ, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. I believe he's that rewarder. I believe that through every fiery trial, every low valley, I believe on every mountaintop of victory and jubilee. I believe when there's a freedom from the deliverance of the power of darkness and the power of Jesus' name has brought freedom, I believe it when I'm in a real struggle, in a real battle, not because I really like it, because, because I am genuinely fighting it. As Brother, Brother Herring preached Sunday, hey, I, wherever in whatever state I am, I want to be convinced in who he is and that his word is true and that some glad morning we shall see Jesus in the air and he's coming back after you and me in joy is ours to share. Amen? Amen? To live a life that pleases God. Amen. If you believe that, if you want that to be your testimony, if you have time and you don't, I know some of you got to go to work so early. God bless you. But if you'd like, would you join us at the front? Would you join us here in the place we call an altar? And we're just going to come and affirm before God. God, this is what it's about. God, between me and you, this is how I want to live my life. I'm looking unto you, Jesus. I can't do this in my own power, but I can do it by the power of Jesus Christ. Lord, I believe you are, and I believe you're a rewarder. Would you join us at the front? Would you make that a sincere commitment in prayer and declaration to God? Come on, church. Before we go out and live this life, before we go out and we're the mission of Jesus Christ to our world, we need to know who we are. God, I want this to be my testimony that I please you, that I please you, Lord. Amen. Lift up your voice. Would you close your eyes? All across this congregation, would you just close your eyes and begin to worship God? Begin to pray into the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't have to worry about anybody beside you right now. We'll pray for one another in just a moment. But would you just talk to God for yourself? Closing your eyes just kind of helps you focus on God. God, I want to please you. You are, and you're the rewarder of those who diligently seek you, God. Well, let's do that. Let's lift up our voice. Let's lift up our voice. Come on.